So, good morning. So I have the privilege of examining, talking on 6th, 7th, and 8th Commandments. Kim, if you'd put up um, the Romans 13, 9, first, please. So there's a, a humor story which many of you have probably heard before, but it kind of, to me, bears weight on, on the subject matter this morning of parents with a toddler. And as a toddler, this particular toddler is quite defiant. And so it comes to the time of saying, okay, Johnny, time to get in the high chair or into the car seat or, you know, such a simple endeavor. And defiance just, oh, right there. No, I'm not going to sit down. And the knees get locked on the whole no, So finally, of course, you know, adult parent wins and the child is sitting down, but in that mumbling defiance, I might be sitting down, but on the inside, I'm still standing. Of course, how much of we can relate to that. Like the external, like, okay, fine. But inside, we're like, no. Romans 13, 9, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, shall not covet. And any other commandment summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think that um, through all 10 commandments, God is really, there's the, the form of external compliance but then Jesus makes it clear through the Beatitudes and through other passages that really God is going after our hearts. And where is our, our heart in the matter? So this morning I just want to touch on a few things related to the aspect of, in a more general sense, of sin, temptation, and the things that God is calling us to, the work he's desiring to do. And all of this is in the arena of our hearts and our mind and our soul. As I was uh, thinking on this, uh, I, God's kind of wired me, um, and, and I've, I've, I've said it, and for most of you that know, it's kind of a given. Um, God's wired me relationally. Head to toe, 120%, I'm a relational person. And uh, that has, like many other things, some advantages and some disadvantages. There's times where I you know, wrestle with some things. But anyway... Um, a part of that package deal is that I've um, relationally grace seems to flow fairly easy for me. And so that's afforded me some interesting um, career job things. I worked for eight years at Teen Challenge, which is a live-in program for guys with life-controlling addictions, drug or alcohol-related. I worked for one year with, a, uh, with Saving Grace, which is a um, housing ministry for guys just released from prison on parole. And so in light of these uh, particular commandments, 6, 7, and 8, I had um, there, I had the opportunity to get to know acquaintance, know you know, fairly well at that, you know, appropriate level. But anyway, no men who have 
committed some really terrible crimes, who have committed murder. Um, you know, adultery and stealing, that's, you know, like kind of candy to guys. In, because most of the guys that uh, are uh, in that context of that specific place are there because uh, they don't really have a whole lot of other avenues to where they can go after when they're released on parole, whether it be because they're um, on the sex offender registry or just because of the social stigma, whatever the situation is, but a lot of times the guys that are there are uh, some, from a, a world standpoint, very rough characters. So I say that to say that really unchecked our hearts, that sin nature in us, can pull us to some pretty um, deplorable states. So we need to, uh, part of one of the things that I want to touch on is, again, our outlook on sin, our outlook on temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul reminds us that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way that you can endure it. So God has given us that, that promise there that, again, our outlook on temptation is kind of important because if we view ourselves as simply, particularly with the ones that we really, you know, the enemy knows our weaknesses. He's going to look to exploit our weaknesses. That's just plain, simple battle strategy. So we need to have this verse and others in mind to be able to realize, I, I don't have to be chained to that thing. In four weeks, we celebrate Easter. We'll be taking a, a very focused look at what was accomplished at Calvary. What did Christ really endure for my sake, for your sake, to free us from the chains of sin? So the enemy, of course, would love to have us think that, ah, you know, I'm Irish, that's just the way that things happen, or, you know, whatever, exploit, uh, blame X, Y, Z that, well, I can't, this is just the way I am. No, that's a lie of the enemy. God's promised in his word He's able to take us out, but do we turn to him? And it's important, the context of that. I'm just going to take a couple verses from that same chapter, preceding verse 13. Verses 2 and 4, Paul says, They were all baptized, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all had the same spiritual food and drink from and drank from the same spiritual rock. They drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Jumping to verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. And even in that, Paul is talking about the state of our heart. We can have that promise, and we need to hold on to that promise, but yet there's also the aspect of the importance of self-examination. And what I'm going to touch on in just a moment here, too, is what it comes into this verse, is how external compliance doesn't necessarily mean we're letting God deal with the issues of our heart. The nation of Israel, they all walked through the Red Sea that was parted miraculously by God. They were all fed by God with manna. 
but yet their hearts were still set on evil things, which is what Paul is talking about. Because, in my estimation, they, they allowed themselves, again, that deception of, well, this is just the way I am, and not dismantling that lie at the heart, at the mind, at the soul level. Another thing that it's important to keep in mind as, as we find ourselves facing temptation, wrestling against sin, is to kind of pull back a little bit and say, ask yourself, well, what is God's posture on this sin? Not so much, of course, God hates sin. Sin separates us from God, but yet more of, the more I'm able to kind of pull myself, again, pull myself back. God's posture, what is God, is not, this sin is not bigger than God. And again, it's another lie of the enemy. It's just like, well, if I'm chained to it, then this thing has now become bigger to me than God. No, God's much bigger than that, but yet God allowed this sin to be hitting me. What's God after in this? Not my defeat. God wants to take me to a better place. God wants to have me become a stronger person on the other side, to walk in victory. To walk in victory, I'm going to be a stronger person. I'm going to see God's faithfulness in a brand new way. I'm going to be able to have that experience to lean on the next time the devil tries to hit me with that same attack, thinking he's going to, you know, he may have won the battle the last hundred times, but I'm going to now commit myself, be steady on the word, do what I can to have my mind and everything so that I can win the 101st and hopefully the 102nd. Get some things under my belt to see God in a new light, to see God's faithfulness in a new way on a personal level with the areas that I wrestle with in my sins. So we need to see, again, that God's posture is, is not so much that he's waiting just to hammer us for dropping the ball. He's wanting to take us to a better place. And John 15, verse 2, Jesus said, God prunes every branch that does not bear fruit, that, it, that the vine, essentially, will bear more fruit. God's desiring to strip away from us those areas of weakness so that we can bear more fruit. He's desiring to take us to a better place, and the more we can have our, our soul resonate with that truth, the more we'll be able to walk in victory against these sins. Again, the, uh, the, that changing of the mind, of uh, the paradigm that we have, it's a lot like I mentioned how Paul talked about the nation of Israel. And when they get to the, the border of the promised land, they send the spies. Check out the land. Let's see what, we, let's see what we're up against which to me kind of in and of itself is an interesting thing because God had already promised to give them the promised land, but yet let's send the spies in to see what it's, what it's like, what we're up against. They sent in 12 spies, one from each tribe. And, of course, many of you are aware. Anyway, the 10 come back with some bleak report. And Joshua and Caleb were the only two of the 12 that came back saying, in God, we got this. The land is blessed. The land is bountiful. But the other ten were saying, there's giants in the land, <laughs> really big, and they have fortified cities, and we're like grasshoppers against these fortresses and against these giants. 
When the enemy comes in and attacks us, again, where is our focus? Are we looking at the number of times we've been defeated in the past in that particular sin? Are we focused on, uh, I'm nothing against that. Or are we focused on how big God is? And again, where's God, what's God's posture? What is God desiring to do in me? God's desiring to take me to a better place. God's desiring to bring me more and more victory so that I can testify of his faithfulness. Which leads into another point, which, again, I'm, I'm, I'm so wired relationally that the aspect of the whose report will we believe and who we're going to be standing with, not only is that in our own mind, but I believe it's also important in the context of relationships one with another. Why we, as a leadership, kind of pound that drum of life groups. Because that's where relationships are able to go to that like, next level. The enemy would love to have each and every one of us fooled into thinking that, well, I have to kind of put up that facade and smile and praise the Lord and everything's good and all those types of things because if somebody knew where I was really at, I might be rejected. Uh, that's, that's a lie of the enemy, each and every one of us. Romans 3, anyway, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us have battles. Each and every one of us have, some, have battle scars from our past and have things that we're wrestling with in the here and now. But to be able to have that, take that step of faith, take that, that step of, of openness to a degree of being able to say, could you pray for me? Whatever with it, you know, is going on, and to be able to have others stand with you to be those two spies, to be able to say, God's bigger than that. I know God's going to be able to take you through. Yeah, we'll pray with you, and we're going to do whatever it takes to stand with you because God's going to take you to a better place. God's promised it. So, yeah, it's, it's the, the importance of embracing that transparency, embracing that growing in relationship one with another. So we have our posture as far as what, what, is, what is God's perspective, seeing God as trying to do a good work in us, pruning us. And there also needs to be the importance of, of our heart's response in the times where we fall short. That of seek, turning to God and having that soft heart. Confession, when, again, with the life groups, and as God would move you into, if there's a particular area that you're really wrestling, and God will likely move you into a point of having a measure of account- accountability, getting somebody to really, uh, on a deeper level, stand with you to help you win, help you see God as being faithful and pray for you and engage in that spiritual battle with you so that, that confession requires courage, but the repentance side of it is paramount. And the repentance requires the soft heart. Thinking on, in Luke 15, you have the parable of the prodigal son. 
and how he got full, the, the one that went away, got full of himself, oh, I got this, I can do that, and all these other types of things, and um, squanders all the money that he demanded his father give him as his inheritance. And then the other brother is, stays at home. He's faithful to do all the stuff that his dad's supposed to, you know, ask him to do, and he's doing what's right externally. The son that's been squandering everything, blown all the money and everything, realizes I need to go back home. This is ridiculous. At least maybe my dad will take me as a servant, and I'll probably, I'll certainly be treated better than the way I am right now. So he goes to his dad, and again, most of us are familiar with that account where the dad sees him because his dad's been waiting for him to return, expecting him to return, hoping he'd return. And dad sees him a long way off and runs and, you know, doesn't even let him go through his speech of like, can I please just be a servant? I know I blew it and I'm not worth being your son and I'm just a worthless, duh. The dad doesn't even let him get through that. He's just so ecstatic and throws a big party because his son is back now. And of course, the one that has been home and has been faithful and doing everything that he's supposed to do. He's done all the rules and regs. Wants nothing to do with the party. And the father's like, his heart's kind of broken on it. Like, come on, this is your, your brother's back. We should be rejoicing. But the hardness of the other brother's heart completely eliminates him from enjoying any of the festivities of the son that returned. Again, it's so easy for us to have a measure of external compliance. God's after our heart. Are we willing to acknowledge, for that son to acknowledge that the father has this view of my brother that doesn't, that doesn't compute. That's not right. My understanding, speaking as the brother that didn't go in, my understanding of the way my father works, he should be just throwing him out the door, kicking him. There's no way he should be allowed back because of all the mistakes that he made, the mess of his life, there's no way. He gets so locked into his perspective of how he thinks his father should be that he can't make any sense of it. And he stays in that stubborn hardness of heart, and it keeps him out. And again, looking at the context of the crowd that Jesus was speaking this to, he's laying it really thick and heavy and hard on the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they were the ones that were keeping what they thought all the religious law. They were dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. So again, it's, it's where our heart is, the importance of where our heart is. And I just want to share a few verses that we'll touch on to be, to be able to equip us and underscore the importance of where our heart is at. Because we can be prepared a little bit before the attacks. You know, I, I've talked on like basically our, our posture um, in the midst and after to have that confession, to have that repentance, to be seeking to have some accountability with things so that we can re, essentially reprogram our brain to see God in a different way, to see that he really wants to pull us to victory. So anyway, uh, looking at the matters of our heart, in Proverbs 4, 23 and 27, it says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it issues, uh, I'm giving a little bit of a paraphrase, 
from it or the uh, uh, actually Kim, can you put it up because four yes four twenty three actually yeah I'll continue on from there. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put away devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet that all your ways will be sure. Yeah, do not swerve to left or right. Turn your foot away from evil. But those verses start, predicate on the guard your heart. Again, underscoring the importance of our heart. And the way, in the Old Testament, there's 800 references using that same Hebrew word for heart. And a quarter of those refer to basically that the, the soul, the, the mind, the, the part that will establish where our path is going, our disposition. The issue of our soul, our heart, our mind, that becomes our, our character, and our character reflects our heart. That's what the, that same Hebrew word, a quarter of the time, is referring to that type of thing as far as the, our heart, our mind, our soul. Paul, um, actually, sorry, but let me get one more verse from Proverbs. 23, verse 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Again, the, the importance of letting God do some surgery on our hearts. Paul talks on this also in Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. The importance of spending time in his word and allowing him to speak to us. Transformed by the, you know, so that we can get the stupid lies of the enemy that he's been hammering into us. Get those things pulled out. Paul also in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5 speaks of he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that it exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Because if we really are um, determined and we really take a, a serious examination of our own hearts, I think falling in any of those commandments, failing in any of them, really comes down to breaking the very first commandment. We've let whatever thing become bigger than God from our own perspective. If I steal a paperclip from work, <laughs> well, it's just a paperclip, but yet... Am I believing God to take care of all my needs? The paperclip belongs at work. I don't really need to have that paperclip go home. But if I do that, essentially, I mean, that's a very simplistic and very minor thing, but yet the truth applies to me across the board. To the guys that, you know, in prison for stealing a car or, you know, whatever, that's, you're saying you've got to take this into your own hands because God's not going to do it for you. And you're not willing to wait. Love is patient. <laughs> That's right in. 
James also um, touches on these things in James chapter 4. Let's read a, a few verses from there. Verses 2 and 3. You lust because you do not have, you commit murder. You're envious, yet you cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Jumping down to verse 6 and 7. But God gives more grace. Wherefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, again, having that, uh, to me, just is underscoring time and time again the importance of where our heart is at and how do we see God. If I'm looking and saying God's trying to prune this thing out of me so that I can bear more fruit, it's a little bit easier for me to have a humble heart before God. Say, God, I, I need your help. I know you're wanting to do this good thing in me, and I can't do it on my own. I need your help, and I know that I need your help. So I think, again, going back to the, um, what I had read in Second Corinthians, the point of the nation of Israel and the Pharisees, and it's just such a strong theme that God was really essentially hammering me through this as I was preparing. How often and how easy it is to get caught up in our own systems, which we're comfortable with, and we get duped into thinking or accomplishing different things. Well, I go to church. Well, I go to life group. Read the Bible this morning. I prayed. I gave an offering. I even realized that I could give more because Howie keeps talking and that God owns it all, so I put an extra 10 bucks in. Whatever. We have this, like, it's so easy. The enemy pulls us into this system of wanting to have checklists and check marks and so that we can, but really, 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 God is all after the heart. In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul talks about those who hold to a form of godliness but deny the power. I think what he's really getting to is that the enemy would love to have us get caught up in tradition, separated from the truth. We can get caught up into the tradition and having appearance of godliness. Go to church, X, Y, Z, check, 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 check. I'm doing good. I got four out of five check marks. Yay. Go me. But denying the power. We're doing all these external things, but we're not letting God really deal with our heart. There's areas that we know that we are probably, and we allow ourselves to get fooled into thinking, I'm going to fail maybe someday, but the feats keep racking up, and the enemy keeps bouncing us around like a ping pong ball. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. He wants to just basically be deceiving us. In John in that way, having a form of godliness, denying the power, because we get caught up in traditions, caught up in the check marks. In John 14, verse 6, very well-known passage, Jesus declares that he is the way, the truth, and the life. In examining that, I feel that when he says the way, we need to embrace the question, how am I, what way am I living my life? 
what way is, is my heart pulling me to live my life? Am I living my life in such a way that I'm really acknowledging God's faithfulness, that I'm acknowledging God desires to prune this particular area? But I'm going to press through because I know he's faithful, and I'm going to let him do that work, and I'm going to see victory on the other side. What way are we living our lives? In Matthew 15, related to this, um, won't, I'll just summarize it, but you can find it in Matthew 15, verses 8 through 20. Basically, the Pharisees are coming up and, again, check marks and all the boxes and their whole system of religion. They're coming up to Jesus and they're giving him a hard time because the disciples weren't engaging in the appropriate washing of their hands, ceremonial washing and stuff like that before they're eating. Well, there's obviously, you know, good health and things like that to washing your hands, but they were speaking of a very strict ceremonial form in that sense. And Jesus said, well... Really, having your hands washed before you eat, you eat, it's processed, it's eliminated, but what comes out of your mouth, which is bearing fruit of your heart, that's what defiles a person. Not what they eat going in, but what comes out, because what comes out is a reflection of your heart. So we have the way and the truth. Do we allow the truth of God's promises, the many things that he's given to us, do we allow that truth to transform us? Truth has got to get some traction. James says faith without works is dead. To what extent are we allowing that truth to transform us? It's, there's got to be some traction to it. If you look back in the Old Testament, Abraham, God speaks to him. Abraham, and he leaves leaves the country that he was, you know, raised, everything that he leaves. Now look at Moses. Moses, out, he, he, he tried to take things in his own hands, kills the Egyptian guard, whatever. Then he flees, and he's out in the desert in Midian. God speaks to him, and Moses goes back. God speaks to Abraham, and he leaves. God speaks to Moses, and he goes back, obeying God's call. And you look at the life of Joseph, in the Old Testament. Knowing God had something special for him, but yet finds himself time and time again in some very difficult, pressing, hard situations where the temptation would just be to say, forget it. There's no way. God's not going to be doing this. No, no. But he endures all of these hardships. And just one last example of the, the action side of it. Look at Joshua. Again, I, I mentioned the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua, we're going in. We're going to do battle. We're going to take the promised land. God's given it to us. So if you're Joshua, you fight. So there's all, all these examples of, of the actual action. So truth demands transformation. Truth demands action. What action are we willing to take? Take God up on the offer of giving us victory in these different areas. The way, the truth, and the life. Again, how are you living your life? Are you allowing this, these truths that God's speaking to you to transform your life, to be willing to upset the cart of tradition? Well, you know, what, what, because the enemy so often will, will throw that at us to have us buckle under the temptation. 
This is just simply being set in tradition. Whatever the tradition is, but are we willing to allow God to challenge and break us out of some rote traditions that really aren't getting us anywhere but continuing the path of defeat? One last thing I just want to touch on in the um, sense of, in Matthew 5, Jesus talks, um, he's sharing on the Beatitudes. And one particular part of it that ties in with the, these particular three commandments, Jesus makes the statement that if you uh, look at a woman's lust, you've already committed adultery. And Again, in, in, in preparing stuff like that, I, well, I'm going to backpedal just a little bit. When I was in college, um, I, I know particularly that that was something that I had, had wrestled with. But anyway, the way, the way I, um, and I don't think it was really from a, a teaching or anything like that, but it was just something that probably God just dropped in me of being a, a tip, so to speak, would be... Seeing an attractive girl and being able to say, okay, you know, this, this um, before going to Bible school, I was at Alfred University um, for engineering, secular, all kinds of craziness going on there. But anyway, um, so there were a fair amount of attractive girls. Anyway, <laughs> and just to be able to say, okay, you know, acknowledging that there is beauty, but going and then having my focus, my attention turned to God to be able to say, you know, okay, I don't know a whole lot about that person, but I know enough to know that that's just really not what God's called me to because of the lifestyle, because of whatever. But still being able to acknowledge beauty. So essentially it was a, okay, that's beautiful, God at some point, you got to, like, keep that in mind because, like, at some point, like, I know you're probably going to give me a wife, give me a mate, but, like, <sighs> and so to, to <laughs> just, just being, just, sorry, I'm being, trying to be practical with this, but yet I think sometimes there is a misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying in that, in, in the saying that to acknowledge beauty is not sin. What are we doing? Sorry. What are we doing with that thought afterwards? What are we doing with that beauty in our hearts? Because the same word in the Greek that is. Lust, translated lust in that, that passage in, in Matthew, is used a few other times by Matthew. It doesn't get translated to lust in our English language. For instance, Jesus, Passover dinner. Jesus says, I, I've longed to eat this Passover dinner with you. Well, it's the same Greek word, lust. So in Greek, I could really say, this morning I'm lusting to have that pastry. And that's fine in Greek, but English, it just sounds a little weird. <laughs> just sounds like, just a little. 
in Matthew, uh, it also says, let's see, I'm just trying to get my spot here. Jesus is speaking with the, the disciples, and I'm not sure, I, I apologize, I don't know, this might be in context of the, the, transform, the transfiguration, but anyway, uh, in Matthew thirteen seventeen, for truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men, now going with a literal translation, many righteous and prophet, they are prophets and righteous men lusted to see and did not see and to hear what you heard but they did not hear it. So, yeah, they longed. Well, that, that really is lusted. So, anyway, and another important thing as far as the, the Greek that is, in my opinion, and, again, I was doing some research, and I'm not the only one, so it's not just me, fly, goofy thought. But the grammar for the Greek is, is really important in where Jesus is saying that, excuse me, um, that Matthew structured that sentence to be very clear on what is the purpose of that look. Because the, um, and I, I wouldn't be saying the words correctly, so I'll skip that part. But anyway, um, Matthew uses the same sentence structure in chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Beware of practice, Jesus saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. So there's nothing wrong with being righteous, but if your whole point of being righteous is to be seen by other people in order that you may be seen, that's the same, that's this grammar structure that Matthew used in, in the other passage. Um, Jesus saying, Gather up the wheats and the tares, or the, the gather up the tares and bind them into bundles in order to burn them up. So again, it's, and there's a few other passages where I won't take time to read, but the whole thing is really examining what's, what's the purpose. Okay, there's acknowledging beauty and move on. Acknowledge beauty and even, hey, bring God in the equation of, at some point, God, and this was, of course, before I was married, and as a little side point, um, <laughs> I'll try to keep short, but anyway, when I met Kim, it was it was a it was a very God orchestrated thing, and I was not expecting, I was not looking, I was not on a dating site, I was not, I was, I was like not wired at all, nowhere in that realm, not in my wheelhouse at that particular instant, and I, I was um, going in for my up, getting an interview to be hired, hopefully at Teen Challenge, and she opened the door, and. So I was like, and it's a huge door, and I'm like, basically, I know a little bit about Teen Challenge, and I'm expecting this, like, marine, half marine, half gorilla bouncer guy <laughs> to open this, like, huge door, because it's, like, they've got 11 foot, yeah. <laughs> Kim's back there modeling her gorilla-ness. Um, and, and so anyway, yeah, and she opened the door, and as I've, my, my, trying to be short with this time standpoint. But anyway, from when, whenever that change was, that changed from girls having cooties to girls, oh. <laughs> whenever that was, all the way back then, for me, my internal wiring, attraction, beauty, all those types of things towards the opposite sex was blonde hair, blue eyes, jeans, jacket, sneakers, just that, like, everyday casual kind of like type of 
And literally, when she opened the door, her hair, she hardly ever wears her hair down now, but it's like down to here. She was wearing a jeans jacket, T-shirt, blue jeans, sneakers. Like to the T. And of course, incredibly attractive. But anyway. <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was fried for that, that interview, and there's a lot other that I won't go into. Sometime it'll be a humorous story, and I could tell you more, but that's not the point of why I'm standing here now. God really desires to be um, doing heart surgery on us, and it's really because when it comes down to the, the intent and where is our heart at, it really boils down to what is my perspective of God? Am I really believing that God will be faithful? Am I really believing that God is able to come through with the promises of his word? And can I take him at his word? Or am I going to just fall back to the same lies that the enemy has been whispering in my ear and give him the upper hand and let him throw me around like a ragdoll in that particular area of sin? Yet again. So again, I'm, I would trust that it's the, uh, the the not murder in the literal sense, but yet again, you know, we've experienced hurt, we've experienced tragedy. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and so that temptation to exact out of anger, revenge, and let our brain play out. The situation, Jesus, again, is very clear on he's after our heart. So although we may not have literally committed murder, we need to be willing to allow that self-examination and the Holy Spirit to really prick our hearts to be able to say, no, wait, okay, God, you know how I feel about this, but I know you are faithful. I know you've got this situation, and you're desiring something better in me that I can walk in victory despite whatever that difficult, horrific thing was and is. Amen?